as we look at um, as we look at this book overall, it kind of give us just a brief idea of um, how this is all structured again. Mark, again, is taking us sort of on this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is both Messiah and the Son of God. And as he takes us on this journey from one place to the next, from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, if you remember, he sort of takes um, events or um, miracles or other things and he sort of groups them together based on theme. He doesn't pay quite as much attention to chronological things, meaning they're not always specifically chronological. That's not his, his point. He sort of takes them and groups them. Sometimes he takes them a little bit in a different order maybe um, than what some of the other Gospels do. But he groups them based on theme into these small sections. So he does that because he's trying to teach us something, and it all goes back to supporting his um, premise of who Jesus is. And so as we go through the book, we, we um, take these sections and we look at them and we sort of group, or we mark groups them into these themes, and those themes then are then ultimately what we have to discover and figure out what his purpose is in doing that. Today he's going to kind of do two things for us. One is he's going to summarize um, Jesus' ministry. And he's going to, through that, help us to understand some of the purposes. And then the second thing he's going to do is he's going to talk to us about um, insiders and outsiders, is maybe a good way to say it. Because there were different reactions to Jesus while he was here in his earthly ministry. And we're going to find that some of those individuals ultimately are a part of the kingdom of God. They're insiders. And we find that some of them are outsiders. They're not part of the kingdom of God. And as we look at that, we're going to sort of see what determines that difference. What does it mean to be an insider versus an outsider? And so he's going to do that for us as well. So let's go ahead and first look at his summary of Jesus' ministry. Verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3. I'm going to read those for us. Again, chapter 3 of Mark, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from... um, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. What we have here again is sort of a summary. Mark gives us this um, big picture view, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. And we see through that a number of purposes here. One of Mark's purposes here is to show the influence and popularity of Jesus among the general population. Not just in sheer numbers, but in geography. Notice a couple of things here. Mark refers to the crowds that followed Jesus as a great multitude, a great number of people. I was studying the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 this last week in preparation as we, get, as we come to that section. And what's remarkable about that is you've heard before the feeding of the 5,000, but it's actually probably more like fifteen to 20,000 people that Jesus fed in that particular instance because all the Gospels, all four of those, indicate that the 5,000 count only applies to the men. Well, if you assume an equal number of women and an equal number of kids, which likely there's probably significantly more kids, there's at least fifteen to 20,000. That's a massive crowd of people in one event. Well, the same thing is said of the feeding of the 4,000. The number only applies to the men. 
So the crowds that Jesus was attracting were, in an understatement, great. Or, as he says here, a great number of people. It was massive. Just imagine today if we had 20,000 people out here in the parking lot. Do you think they'd fit? I'm not sure how much space that would take up, but these were huge. What's that? Nationwide Nationwide Arena. Um, The Crew Stadium, I think seats, what, 20,000? Is that right, Dustin, somewhere in that neighborhood? A little less. They wouldn't all fit. These are huge crowds of people. And to make it even more significant, the 5,000 and the 4,000 are really only referring to a specific group at a specific time that Jesus fed. In all likelihood, some of these crowds that were coming at other times were even significantly larger than that. So they were huge. Look at the list of regions that he mentions there as well. Because again, he's trying to give us an indication of not just the size of the crowds, but the, the breadth of where they came from. He says that they came from Judea, which is to the south, and from Jerusalem, which is also in the south. Idumea, beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. What he's basically described is that they came from as far north and as far south, and as far east and as far west as they could possibly come from as it relates to Israel in the surrounding Gentile area. These people came from all over. In fact, some of these locations were approximately 120 miles away from where Jesus was ministering up in Galilee. Think about that. How long would it take you today to go 120 miles driving? Somebody do the math on that? A couple hours maybe, right? Okay. But what are these people traveling by? By foot mostly. Some of them had traveled likely days, maybe weeks, to come be around Jesus. So the first purpose we see here with Mark is he's trying to give us a feel for how large, how massive this ministry of Jesus was, where these people were coming from. Again, all over Israel in large numbers. Another purpose appears to be of showing that the primary reason people were drawn to Jesus was to seek Relief and healing from their afflictions. There was a reason why they were coming. According to verse 8, look at what it says there. It says they were coming from this large region. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing, and so they came to him. Why did they come to him? Because they heard what he was, what was he doing. Well, he was obviously teaching, right? Do you think that was the primary draw? A lot of us pastors and teachers would love to think that people come to church just to hear us preach. The reality of it is that's not always why they come. They're coming for other reasons. Fellowship and other things. But in this particular instance here, I'm sure they were interested in Jesus' teaching because they were amazed by it, but they really were coming to him because they wanted to be healed. Look at verse 10. It says, And he healed many with the results that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. These people were coming because they were desperate for relief. They wanted to be healed. They wanted relief from their afflictions. Now, I think it would be tempting here to present the crowds as selfish or only interested in what Jesus could do for them. But I don't know that you could necessarily blame them. They were desperate. They were hurting. They needed help. In fact, the emphasis that we find in the book of Mark's, Mark um, on the number of healings and the casting out of demons that Jesus did gives us a pretty indication that these people were miserable. They were in desperate, dire straits. There's nothing selfish about that. Wanting to be healed, wanting to come to Jesus. And so I think it'd be a mistake to look at these people and say, look at what they, they were all... Jesus never rebuked them for this. Isn't that interesting? 
He rebukes them for their hardness of heart and refusing to accept him as Messiah. But he doesn't rebuke them for coming to him because they were desperate to be healed. I think the Lord loves it when we come to him and asks, ask him to help us with our afflictions and help us in our sufferings. And so another purpose that Mark has here giving us his summary is to indicate why these people came to him. They were in dire needs. Another purpose is related to the demonic activity that we see here. And this is rather an interesting one. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says this, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The wording indicates that this was a common occurrence, which is also evidenced throughout. Um, It kind of speaks in the ongoing tense, if you will, that this is something that happened on a regular basis. It's important in Mark's Gospel because he presents Jesus as preaching the Gospel of God, which if you remember back in chapter 1, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that exactly ties to what we have with the demons here. Because in just a few verses, Jesus will describe or explain to the Pharisees that his purpose in exercising authority over the demons, why he cast out the demons, had everything to do with putting an end to Satan's rule and ushering in God's kingdom. So the question is, why would Jesus tell them not to say who he was? You would think that's what he wants, right? Demons all yelling and screaming, this is the Son of God. What better evidence could you have of Jesus being the Son of God than demons saying that, right? Well, I think we find our answer when we look at some of the other scriptures. We look at um, verses 125 and, and 34 at the beginning. We find that the demons did this quite often, and Jesus always told them to not reveal who he was. He tells the disciples in another place not to tell people that he was the Messiah. He tells other people when he heals them, don't go say anything. Anybody want to venture to guess why he might do that? kind of runs counter to what you'd expect, wouldn't it? What do the faith healers do today? <laughs> Way out in the open. More people that come, more people can put money in the buckets they pass, right? It is all about the... Things happen to have to happen in a certain sequence. That's a huge part of it. Is that, um, In fact, I want you to do something. Turn to um, Matthew chapter 12. The demons at one point, that's not this particular passage, but the demons at one point ask Jesus, we're going to cover this at a later time, have you come basically to send us to the abyss now? And Jesus basically says, no, their time will come. Because the book of Revelation indicates that there's a time that will come when Jesus will confine demons and Satan to the abyss for a thousand years. And then he'll let them out again only to squash them like a bug and send them into the lake of fire. And he indicates that that time has not quite come yet. Well, look at what Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter 12 says. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, just aware of the Pharisees' plan to kill him, when he was aware of this, he withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out. 
Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus' plan was to come not just to Israel, but was to come to the Gentiles. At this point, he's primarily ministering among the Jews. He will begin to minister to the Gentiles as he travels down to uh, Jerusalem. In fact, there's a couple of passages that surround the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 where he specifically deals with taking care of the Gentiles. So that time has not come yet. And so it all does come down to timing, as Steve and Dave have alluded to here. The other thing you see here is this image that we get of Christ is not that he's going to come with a bunch of fanfare. He didn't come to rush in and usher in automatically this this kingdom of God in the sense of establishing his reign and wiping out the Romans as so many people had expected of him. Instead, you get this picture, his voice will not be heard in the streets crying out. He He won't break off a broken reed, it says. What we really get is this picture of the meek and mild in some respects suffering servant Messiah that will come. It's interesting that Jesus' ministry was primarily founded and based upon how many men? Primarily 11, if you don't, if you exclude Judas. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, suffers, dies, rises, and then ascends into heaven, what he leaves behind are 11 men, some women, and, and maybe... We, we guess anywhere from 120 to maybe 500 committed followers. Very small. It wasn't this massive movement. And so the picture that Matthew gives here when, when um, Jesus is telling those that he had healed to not say anything has a lot to do with that wasn't his purpose, to start this revolution, to be a big voice. It was to be quiet to develop and to train men who would ultimately then pick up the ball when he leaves to then build his church. And that's exactly what we see. What happens when the the disciples um, are all up at Pentecost and the tongues of fire come down? How many people got saved that day? Tenfold. Five thousand people get saved that day. That's when the explosion happened. That's when the noise began, if you will. So Jesus did not come to start this revolution of sorts. It was much quieter than that. He came to redeem people spiritually, to usher in the beginnings of the kingdom of God. And so Mark's point in sort of summarizing this for us helps us kind of get 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 our hands wrapped around how Jesus came, why Jesus came. And again, it includes um, kind of this quiet beginning, if you will. He wasn't interested in starting this big messianic revolution um, there's also just sort of a practical reason for it as well. You notice people here are coming around and pressing around Jesus so hard and heavy that he has to say, guys, give me a boat. i got to go out to the water because I'm getting crushed here. Elsewhere we're told that he could barely go into a city because there would be so many people. Th- he couldn't even function. He couldn't even minister because of the massive size of the crowd. So by telling people, don't tell anyone, he knew they were going to tell people anyway. There's just a practical reason for that to allow him to continue to minister and do what he came to do without the crowds becoming so out of control and so massive that he can no longer go anywhere. In fact, this is a good example. People hear and they flock. And we see that throughout the Gospels here. There's times where he has to try to pull the disciples away privately and then get sort of caught because as soon as he steps on the shore trying to get away, all these people follow him and crowd around him again. So there's a practical reason as well why Jesus would tell them not to 
tell them who he was. So we've got this summary here. From there, what Mark does now is he gives us an indication as to how Jesus' ministry is received, why it's received. And he does that again by sort of pointing out these groups of people. And so there's going to be four groups of people that he's going to introduce us to here. And what's interesting is he doesn't do a lot of commentary on them. And so it's left off to us to sort of figure out what's his point here and what's his purpose. If you look at verses 13 through 30, again, there's four groups of people here. And the way that he's going to present this to us, you've heard... um, You've heard Dustin allude to this before. He's going to do this in sort of a chiastic structure. Do you know what a chiastic structure is? It's basically an X, sort of. Um, There's different forms of it, but what he basically does is, uh, I'll I'll sort of draw you a picture. He's going to talk about outsiders and insiders. And so he kind of talks about one group, okay, the insiders, then he talks about outsiders, then he talks about outsiders again, and then he comes back to the insiders, another group. And it's just laid out, it's just a structural way, uh, a way of um, using literature to sort of paint a picture and other things. And so I, I know it probably doesn't thrill you too much, but I love things like that because it helps us to interpret the passage. It also helps us to understand who they are. So let's look at this first group. The first group of insiders are the 12 apostles. That's in verses 13 through 19. Let's go ahead and read that. And he went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to them he gave the name Mongeres, which means sons of thunder. What a great nickname. Wouldn't you love to have a name like that? And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. That's another great name. And Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So we've got these twelve. These are hand-picked individuals and they were divinely appointed by Christ for a very specific purpose. Verse 13, he says that he went up to the mountain and he summoned those, I love this, whom he himself wanted. These are men that Jesus specifically identified and drew to himself because he wanted them. The number 12 is obviously significant because it represents the 12 tribes of Israel, identifies what Jesus is doing here. But he also says that specifically they would be with him and he could send them out to preach. So they would would have this special interpersonal access to Jesus unlike the rest. But he would send them out to preach the gospel both during his early ministry, he does that twice, and then after his resurrection. Now what's interesting about this, the order of the names I think is kind of important here. Who's the first individual that he mentions there? What's in your list? Simon Peter. Anybody remember where Mark got his information for the gospel? It's based off the preaching of Peter. Because Mark wasn't there. Tradition tells us that Mark learned most of what he learned probably from Peter. And the reason for that is Peter was probably the primary leader of the church. Um, you've got, you could argue that Paul was for the Gentiles. Peter primarily was for um, the Gentiles. What's that? Somebody? What's that? I'm sorry, Paul was to the Gentiles as Peter was to the um the Gen- or I'm sorry, Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. So he was the source of Mark's gospel. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. 
he was the first disciple to actually declare Jesus as the Christ. Remember that when Jesus pulls him aside and realizes, what are all these other people are saying who I am? Who do you who do you think I am? He was the first one to identify him as the Messiah. Notice that at the tomb after Jesus' rise, when the angel speaks to the women, do you know who he says to go find? Go find the disciples, but he only mentions Peter by name. Nobody else. Remember what happened on the beach when Jesus is walking along the beach and the disciples all went back to fishing because they didn't know what to do? Who does Jesus pull aside privately and walk along the beach with? Tells him to feed his sheep. Well, it's Peter. So again, Peter takes significant um, position, if you will, among the twelve here. And so I think that's why he's listed first. You might say that he's the most prominent insider, if you will. The next two names are also important in the list. I think they're here for a reason. James and John, they made up the inner circle of Peter. There were three that make up Jesus' inner circle. It was Peter, James, and John. They were the only three that were present at the transfiguration of Christ, except for Elijah and Moses. They were the only three disciples that Jesus took with him when he healed the synagogue's daughter, took them right into the room to heal. The rest he made stay outside. He engaged them in private conversation. Oftentimes it did not include anybody else, except on occasion Andrew, sometimes would join them. But Jesus not only talked with the twelve, but took aside these three individuals and occasionally Andrew to have additional private conversations. And then when he was praying in the garden before his crucifixion, these are the three that went with him. It's those he asked specifically. So they take also a prominent role. So you have Peter as an ultimate insider. You have James and John alongside him. I'll jump over the rest. Go down, there's significance in why Judas might be listed last. And why do you suppose that is? Judas was the Judas was the one who betrayed him. Right? So there's even some artistry here to how James, or how um, Mark arranges the names because we learn something about, about them as well. All of these men, with the exception of Judas, are certainly presented by Mark as insiders not just here, but in the rest of the gospel, due to their willingness to give up everything and to follow Christ. And that's exactly what we see with these guys. Um, But what's interesting about that is, even as insiders here, we see these guys struggle in the gospels. In fact, we even got one dude, Peter, who denies him and runs away. So they even struggle as well. They weren't perfect. In some respects, it helps us to some degree because it means that we also sometimes maybe struggle. Just like these men who are as close to Jesus as anyone could possibly be. Shows them as real people here. The second group that Mark mentions is his immediate family. And to be real honest here, they are portrayed as outsiders during Jesus' earthly ministry. Even though some of them, maybe all of them, ultimately become insiders after Jesus' resurrection. But at this point, Mark presents them as outsiders. Look at verses 20 through 21. He says, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people, that's his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his marbles. Well, his senses, same thing. Once again, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd so great in size that it limited his ability to even take a break for a meal. 
So he's in his hometown here. His own people is more literal. That's a more literal translation of the Greek there. It clearly refers to Jesus' family because a little bit later in this chapter it identifies him as his brothers, sisters, and his mother. So his own people here is a direct reference to his immediate family and possibly those that are part of the extended family. Notice that it says here that they set out to take custody of him. It actually refers to grabbing or seizing somebody. And in this context, other translations like the New English translation and that um, get it right when they indicate that he wanted to, they wanted to seize him to prevent him from doing what he was doing. The reason? They thought he had lost his mind. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. So what you have is his immediate family, people who lived with Jesus, grew up with Jesus for practically 30 years. They lived in the same house with him, saw everything that he had done, saw the kind of child he was, saw the kind of um, grown man at this point that he was, saw him doing miracles, saw him healing people, saw him casting out demons, and yet these people are going, yeah, but he's just nuts. In fact... There's a story where Jesus' brothers one time mock him and tell him to go off into Jerusalem during Passover thinking that you just simply want to make a name for yourself. And people who do that, they do it out in public. So why don't you go, Jesus? Why don't you just show off? Do all your neat things you do and draw people to yourself. Isn't that really what this is all about? So they accused him of having selfish motives. This was his family. Mark presents them here as outsiders because of that. Now, fortunately, after his resurrection, um, we find James, his brother, Jude, his brother, leaders in churches. So they clearly came around, but at this point, he presents them as outsiders. The third group mentioned by Mark is also a group of outsiders. It's the scribes. That shouldn't come as any shock or surprise. Let's look at verses 22 through 30. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan is risen up against himself, he is divided, and he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin, because they were saying he is an unclean spirit. This is a rather interesting one. So the Pharisees, or the scribes here, it says, come down from Jerusalem. There's another time that a very similar phrase is used, and what it really is referring to here is this is a delegation. Jerusalem is the capital. It's where it's sort of the headquarter of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. About a, I think it's about 70 miles or so from where Jesus is at right now. And so when you see this phrase that they came down from Jerusalem, or they came from Jerusalem, it means that they were dispatched, likely, by the leadership there to investigate Jesus. They already came with, with the wrong motives. They weren't really interested in learning and and seeing as much as finding ways to accuse him. We're already told a little bit earlier that the Pharisees were plotting to destroy him and to kill him. That's just all basically the same group. They're just different sects within the leadership. So they weren't just local scribes. They were part of a delegation sent by the leaders in Jerusalem. Now what's interesting about this to me is there were local scribes. 
Because they taught in the synagogues, the local synagogues. These guys were the ones that came from the top. Mark indicates that their claims were ongoing. It says they were saying, and it's, it's the, the tense that's used there means that this was an ongoing thing. They continually were saying that Jesus had a demon. So what do we have now? Not just guys coming down to investigate, but now they have claims trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to destroy his reputation. They were constantly saying, this guy, he's filled with Beelzebub. He's a worker of Satan. He does this by the ruler of the demons. I love Jesus' response to him, though. It's brilliant. It comes with a warning. He dismantles their accusations by asking him questions. There's three parables. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. We recently watched the movie Lincoln about the Civil War. It focuses on just a very small period, I think four months of Lincoln's life, where Lincoln was trying to save the Union, knowing that the North and the South fighting would destroy the Union. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. He says, if a house is divided against itself, the house is not able to stand. Think of your own family. When a husband and a wife are bickering and can't get along, causes dissension in the family, ultimately the family has difficulty staying together. He says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. In other words, he had just repudiated their, their, their accusations by basically calling it ridiculous. I can't be a Beelzebub. I'd be fighting my own guys. How does that work? He uses another or another parable to illustrate his necessity in exercising authority over Satan. So now he's going to tell them why he's really exercising authority over the demons. He says, if you're going to plunder a strong man's house, you need to bind him first. Isn't that an interesting statement? Look back up at it again. He says, verse 27. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Who do you suppose the strong man is here? This is a allegory, if you will. Who's the strong man in this illustration? Nobody know? Satan. He's a strong man. What do you suppose his uh, house is? It's this world, this kingdom, right? Who do you suppose his property is? Jesus? No? Us. Yeah. So we have the strong man, Satan. His house is this kingdom here now. His property are the sons of men who he holds captive, the scriptures say, whom he deceives whom he blinds, all of those things are found in the scripture. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says this, that he is the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Second Corinthians says that he blinds the minds of people and actually takes them captive. Colossians chapter 2, though, says that Jesus came to disarm him. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, the reason I exercise authority over the demons here is because I came to plunder the strong man's house. I came to take what he thinks is his and make it my own. So I'm going to bind the strong man and I'm going to plunder his house. What an amazing illustration. Now we know that that doesn't quite take place at this time because Jesus elsewhere tells us, or the, the demons do this, is, is this the time? And the answer that they basically get is, no, not yet. 
All I'm doing right now is binding the strong man. I'm going to plunder it later. I'm going to plunder it later. Jesus came preaching that the time is fulfilled and God's kingdom is at hand. So by ushering in the kingdom of God and his rule, Jesus is putting an end to Satan and his kingdom. It's ultimately the plan. That's a major theme for Mark and why he begins his gospel with the Holy Spirit leading Jesus out into the wilderness. Do you catch that? You notice that when Jesus Christ is baptized, immediately it says that the Holy Spirit came down upon him and what's the very first thing the Holy Spirit does? He takes the fight to the enemy. He takes Jesus out to face Satan as his first act of binding the strong man. Jesus withstands the attacks of the enemy, defends himself with the word of God, and makes it clear that he is now on the offensive. Again, the Spirit took him out to face Satan. Satan didn't come to him. Jesus went to him. And who lost that first battle? Satan did. Didn't get his way, did he? Three attacks leveled against Jesus Christ and he withstood all three of them. By exercising his, de- his authority over demons, he was binding the strong man so that he could plunder him later on. Notice he also is- oh, I'm sorry, issues a rebuke against these Pharisees then as a result of this. He's just explained to them, I can't possibly be of Beelzebub because I couldn't fight against my own kingdom. Actually, I'm here to... Sp- to, to, to lock up that strong man or bind that strong man, and now he's going to issue a warning. I'm going to reread verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That is a condemnation of the, Pharise- or of the scribes. It's nearly identical to what Luke says. When he says that God will forgive blasphemy even against Christ, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to blaspheme? Anybody know? Yeah. It's to accuse somebody of something contrary to their nature and who they are. Again, it's to say something contrary to somebody's nature or character, who they are. So in this essence here, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit means ultimately to say something untrue about the work of the Holy Spirit. To say something contrary to the Holy Spirit. What they had actually done here is they had accused Jesus of working for the enemy. Of actually accomplishing his deeds, his healings, his his other things as a work of Satan and his minions. But it was actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus, we talked about this um, a few months back here, when Jesus actually came, he suspended not his divine attributes, but use of some of those divine attributes. And he made himself completely, utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Which means that Jesus at this time, everything he does is guided by, directed by, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when these uh, scribes, these outsiders, accuse him of doing what he did by the power of Satan, what are they saying? They're, They're saying something contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit. They're accusing the Holy Spirit of, in essence, being nothing less than a demon. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it that Jesus says, 
that all forms of blasphemy, and according to Luke, even blasphemies against him as the Son, and God the Father can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. Why do you suppose that is? Did I put anybody on the spot? Is it possible to come to Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit? It's not. When you deny the work of the Holy Spirit, ultimately, by rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, salvation is absolutely impossible. You cannot receive forgiveness of sins when the very thing that makes it possible for you to be forgiven is rejected. And so as he looks at these Pharisees, ultimately what made these Pharisees, or I'm sorry, these scribes, outsiders was the fact that they rejected what was right in front of their face, the work of the Holy Spirit. Not just in Jesus' life, but obviously in their own. And so that cannot be forgiven. So the only sin that can't be forgiven is when you basically blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And it's because it's required. The work of the Spirit is required for salvation. It's the only thing that can change the heart. And seeing as Jesus Christ, everything he did was empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. For them to completely reject him and to accuse him of working by Satan was a form of blasphemy that could not be forgiven. And so it was a sign of judgment against them as outsiders. The last group, the fourth group here, mentioned by Mark, is now another group of insiders. In other words, it was the true family of Jesus. Look at verses 31 through 35. It says, Then Jesus and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking, around, or looking about at those who were sitting around, he said to them, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This last or this fourth and final group here, I'm going to call the ultimate insiders. You notice that Mark actually returns to the discussion of Jesus' immediate family. He does this a lot where he starts this discussion. Then he all of a sudden puts all this stuff in the middle and he comes back. He's going to do that with the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000 as a section that goes from chapter 6 through chapter 8. And he begins with three verses. And it's all the way at the end where he kind of reintroduces the same thing. And there's all this stuff in between there that you have to figure out what to do with. And he does that here. He now returns to this. Remember, his family set out to go find him. Where is Jesus? Got to bring him back home. He's lost his marbles. But then he fills us in some details here. And what he fills in with those details are pictures of who the outsiders are. He's going to come back to the insiders now. They finally arrive. And they try to take hold of Jesus because he was crazy. However... When the crowd is told that Jesus' family is there, they report that into him, and he flips things on its head, if you will. He takes it as an opportunity to address what it really means to be a part of his family. And it's very simple what he says. Who are my brothers? Who are my mothers? His answer to that is found literally in verse 35. Whoever does the will of God. Whoever does it. That is the punctuation, if you will, to Mark's discussion here on insiders and outsiders. It's those who do the will of God. So even the apostles, we've got one that refuses to do the will of God, Judas. We've got his family 
who we know at one point he goes into Nazareth, back to his family, and they try to run him off the cliff and kill him. He goes back a second time and almost faces the same thing. We have the scribes who clearly weren't interested in doing the will of God. But we have these people all sitting around him who have no genealogical relationship to Jesus. But Jesus said, they're my family. Because they do the will of God. So what do we actually do with this? I think these groups of people represent even our world today in many respects. Think about it. There are those like the apostles who call themselves followers of Jesus, spending time in the Word and at church. They, some of them are genuinely saved. They're part of God's kingdom. But some, like Judas, are all show with no real relationship with Christ. There are those like Jesus' immediate family who've been exposed to the truth about Jesus for their whole entire lives. Over and over again they get exposed, but they just can't bring themselves to accept who he is. They struggle for years, right up and to the point of death, oftentimes. However, there are others. It just takes a while, like Jesus' brother James, or Jude, or his mother Mary, who it simply took a little while to come around. In their case, it took the death of Christ before they were willing to, actually the resurrection of Christ before they were willing to accept. And there's like those as well. In fact, I've shared this before. We asked Pastor Jim at Grace one time at an elder meeting, an elder retreat actually. When you look around the church, how many of the people in here do you think are saved? And he didn't hesitate. Gave us a number of 50% he thought. Maybe 50% of the people in here ultimately really truly do know Jesus Christ, which means there were an awful lot of people there that kind of thought they did. Isn't that what Jesus says, though? He gathers the sheep and the goats and the end of Matthew where he says, some of you that are saying, Lord, Lord, look at all that we did for you. And he said, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Insiders that think they're, or outsiders that really think they're insiders. There are still others like the scribes who absolutely refuse to believe and reject Christ no matter what they say and see. We have that today even within the church. We have whole entire church denominations that reject Christ for who he is. It's all talk. They talk about being religious and yet they ignore the word of God. They're excluded from the kingdom of God just because they wear the label of some denomination does not make them an insider. In the end, it comes down to one simple truth. One very simple truth. Who's an insider? Those that are willing to do the will of God. I want you to turn to a couple of passages with me and we'll wrap it up with this. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul is actually talking to slaves here, but he says something interesting. We'll start in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, and are with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Notice what he says doing the will of God. Where? From your heart. It's an indication of who they serve. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. Hebrews 10, verse 36. 
verse, we'll start in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what was promised. Notice the mention of the will of God there once again. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so that so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but how should they live? For the will of God. Lastly, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. I'll start in verse 15. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who, what? Does the will of God lives forever. Why is this repeated throughout the scriptures? Because ultimately the true test of who is an insider and who is an outsider isn't the label that they wear, isn't the group they associate with. It's not whether they call themselves a Christian or not, but it's ultimately the ones who do the will of God from the heart. And so what Jesus does here and what Matthew indicates to us is as you look at what happens through the book of Mark, there is this constant tension between Jesus revealing himself to people and all the miracles that he did and yet you have all these varied responses to him. And what you find is that Mark helps us understand what it ultimately means to accept Christ as Messiah and Son of God. And it's not those who just associated with him or hung out with him, it's those who ultimately realized that it's about the will of God and doing the will of God from their heart. And so Jesus, as he's looking at this crowd, simply reminds them, the people that are my family are the ones who do the will of God from the heart, which is actually what Jesus himself did.